like you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. Chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation take place in heaven. And just as the church will one day be caught up into heaven, so we see John at this point caught up into heaven. And as we saw in chapter 4, the thing that caught John's attention was the throne. Everything in heaven revolves around the throne. And on the throne, we saw God. And John said he was like a crystal clear jasper stone, and he was like a blood-red sardis stone in appearance. And then around the throne, he saw a rainbow like an emerald stone in green color. And around the throne, he saw 24 other thrones on which were seated 24 elders. And from the throne, he saw lightning and thunder. And before the throne, he saw seven lamps of fire, which represent the Spirit of God. And also before the throne, he saw a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of and around the throne, he saw four living ones. And chapter 5 continues that scene. And John says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And it's as if John's eyes become accustomed to the light of glory and he begins to see more details. And he says, in the right hand of the one who's seated on the throne, I saw a book. Now, what is this book? We're not told in this chapter what this book is. But it's very important that we understand what it is because it's going to help our understanding of the entire rest of the book of Revelation. We do know three things about it from this chapter. Three things become immediately apparent in verse 1. Number one, God is in control of it because it's in his right hand. Number two, it's full of material. It's comprehensive because it says it's written inside and out. It's on, written on both sides. And thirdly, it's reserved for a specific time because he tells us it is sealed with seven seals. Now this is not a book like we know a book today because they didn't have books in that day. This is a scroll and it was sealed with seven seals uh, with the idea that it was reserved for a certain time. Now you say, well what is in this book? Turn in your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 32 and stay with me on this and I think you'll you'll receive a blessing and some insight if you can hang with me, if I can help you understand this. Jeremiah chapter 32. Verse 2. It says, Now at that time the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard, which was in the house of the king of Judah, because Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Why do you prophesy, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm about to give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon. And we go back in time to Jeremiah chapter 32, and we find that Jerusalem is being besieged by Babylon, and Jeremiah is in prison. The reason he's in prison is because of what he is prophesying against Jerusalem. Now, if you go back in time, you'll find that not only did God give Israel a Sabbath day to keep in the law, but God also gave Israel a Sabbath year 
Leviticus 25.4 says that the land is to rest every seventh year. And so they were to work the ground for six years, let it rest. They weren't to sow anything. They weren't to prune their vineyards on that seventh year. And God said, if you don't keep the Sabbath year, I'm going to require it of you. If you won't give it to me, I'm going to take it from you. And in Leviticus 26, 34, God said, if you won't keep the Sabbath year, I'm going to bring an enemy in, drive you off the land, and I will take my Sabbath years from you. Now, in Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah prophesies against Israel, and he says, the time is up. You owe God 70 years. And Jeremiah's prophecy was that Babylon would come in, drive them off the land until 70 years were complete, and at the end of that 70 years, God would punish Babylon and bring Israel back to the land. As he prophesied that, he's placed in prison, but at the same time, Babylon's outside Jerusalem just about to take the city. So it's an interesting time period. Now, with that time frame, look at verse 8. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the guard, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, Buy my field, please, that is in Anathoth, which is in the land of Benjamin, for you have the right of possession, and the redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Now, Jeremiah's in prison. His cousin comes to him and says, I've got a real estate deal for you. Now, it's interesting, it says here he's his cousin, he has the right of possession. Now, in Israel, you couldn't just take your land and sell it to anybody because land was to stay in the family in Israel. Land was very important in Israel. And so if you wanted to sell your land, you had to give the first option to your nearest relative and so on down the line until you could finally sell it outside the family. And so he comes to Jeremiah and he says, you've got the right to buy this land. I got a great deal for you. It's, it's a great piece of land. It's sitting out here. The only problem is the Babylonians are standing on it. Uh, it's kind of like if you were to buy some land in Kuwait today. It wouldn't be the hottest property around. That's kind of the situation here. And besides that, Jeremiah's in prison. So what would he be doing buying land? Well, interestingly enough, look at the end of verse 8. It says, Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord, and I bought the field. Which, which was an Anathoth from Hanamel, my uncle's son, and I weighed out the silver for him, 17 shekels of silver. And so Jeremiah buys the land. And verse 10, And I signed and sealed the deed and called in witnesses and weighed out the silver and so on. And if you slide down to verse 14, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar that they may last a long time. He buys the property, gets the deed. The deed is a sealed deed or scroll. He takes it and he puts it in an earthenware jar. That's the kind of jar they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in. It was something that would preserve it for a long time. And that was the purpose. And the, the meaning behind it all is in verse 15. It says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards, shall again be bought in this land. Jeremiah makes a prophecy. Israel's going to be taken away for 70 years, but they are going to come back. And now just to prove his trust in that prophecy, he buys some land in Israel to assure them that Israel will be coming back to the land. And his deed for that land is a sealed deed. Now, hang on to that thought and look at Daniel chapter 9. 
Daniel chapter 9. After Babylon overthrew Jerusalem, Daniel was one of the ones taken captive to Babylon. He was taken there as a young boy, and he actually grew up in Babylon. And in chapter 9 and verse 2, it says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the, in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Daniel's sitting down and he's reading Jeremiah. And he comes across this prophecy about the 70 years. And he gets his calendar out and he figures out it's been about 67 years. So he starts getting excited. And he says, he made a prophecy that we would be here 70 years and then we would go back to the land and it's almost time for that to be fulfilled and we're going to go back to the land. And so Daniel begins to pray and he prays in chapter 9 to the Lord about this situation. And at the end of chapter 9, the Lord, or Gabriel, comes to Daniel and he tells him in verses 24 to 27 about another 70 year period or 70 weeks of years period. He says, you've been reading about this 70 years. I want to tell you about 70 weeks of years that are going to complete the history of Israel and usher in the kingdom of God. And the thing that he specifies here specifically at the, at the last two verses of the chapter is that seven-year tribulation period at the end. And so you've been reading about 70 years prophesied for Israel. Let me tell you about the completion of their history, and it's going to be another 70 weeks of years Period. Now, look at chapter 12 of Daniel. Verse 4. Daniel accumulates this information, and God says to him in verse 4 of chapter 12, But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. I want you to take this information and I want you to seal it up until the end of time. And verse 8 says, As for me, I heard but could not understand. Daniel says, I couldn't understand everything I was writing. And so I said, My Lord, what will be the outcome of these things or these people Israel? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. And so just as Jeremiah in his 70-year period ended up with a deed to his field that was sealed, Daniel writes about this 70 weeks of years prophesied for Israel, and he ends up with a sealed, what I believe is a deed as well. And I believe this book that we're reading about in Revelation chapter 5 is the title deed to the earth. Jeremiah had a title deed to a field that was possessed by the enemy that would be redeemed after 70 years. There's also a title deed to this earth, which, even though it's possessed by the enemy, will be redeemed after 70 weeks of years in the calendar of God. Now, come back to Revelation chapter 5, and let me try to support that for you. The simplest way to understand this scroll in Revelation chapter 5 is that it is a title deed to the earth. And if you'll look in chapter 6... You'll find in chapter 6, as we'll get into it in the future weeks, that he begins to take the seals off the scroll. 
And in verse 1, it says he broke the first seal. In verse 3, the second seal. In verse 5, the third seal. In verse 7, the fourth seal. Verse 9, the fifth seal. Verse 12, the sixth seal. You come to chapter 8 in verse 1, and he broke the seventh seal. And then out of those seven seals come seven trumpet judgments. And he goes through those beginning in chapter 8 and verse 7, and the first sounded, verse 8, the second sounded, verse 10, the third sounded, verse 12, the fourth angel sounded, chapter 9, verse 1, the fifth angel sounded, chapter 9, verse 13, the sixth angel sounded, and chapter 11, verse 15, the seventh angel sounded, and notice what happens. The seventh angel sounded and there arose loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. What happens? We undo the scroll and he says the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of God and of Christ and he shall reign forever and ever because within this scroll is the title deed to the earth. In fact, also out of this seventh trumpet comes seven bowl judgments, which complete the judgments in Revelation. And if you look over at chapter 16 and verse 17, it says, And the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. This is the completion of the judgments. Verse 18, And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. Notice verse 19. And the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. What happens? He undoes does the scroll and... It's the title deed to the earth, but in the process of his taking the earth, he also destroys Babylon the Great. Who is Babylon? Babylon was, was the country, the nation, the great nation that took Israel when God took his 70 years. We're going to read more about Babylon in the book of Revelation because Babylon is going to represent the world system controlled by Satan, the enemy that controls the land that Christ is to take. And so when this scroll is opened, Babylon is defeated, the enemy that controls the earth today, and Christ is going to set up his kingdom and lay claim to this earth. And so this scroll is the title deed to the earth. Today, this earth is Satan's earth. In Matthew chapter 4, Satan took Jesus up to a high mountain and he said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth if you'll fall down and worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. They belong to Satan. They didn't always belong to Satan. They were originally given to man. Man at one time had the title deed to the earth. Hebrews chapter 2 says about man in verse 7, he was crowned with glory and honor. He was appointed over the works of God's hands. God put all things in subjection under his feet. That was man. But Satan usurped that place. And he took the title deed away from man, and he controls it today. And today man finds himself under the curse of sin. And this earth finds itself under the curse of sin. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, verses 22 and 23, it says that the whole creation groans. The whole creation groans, waiting for the redemption of the sons of God. This earth can't wait to get Satan out 
and get Christ in so that he takes his title deed and claims this earth again. And Revelation chapter 5 describes the entrance of the one who will cast Satan out. Revelation chapter 5 describes the entrance of the one who will bring the redeemed man back to where he was intended to be. The, the description of the one who will claim the title deed of the earth. And so understanding that this scroll is really, in essence, the title deed to the earth, what we have here in chapter 5 just kind of unfolds. You really don't need a preacher to understand chapter 5. You just need to understand what this scroll is, and this whole chapter kind of unfolds itself, given that understanding. We can divide it into three sections. The search for the worthy one, the selection of the worthy one, and the song for the worthy one. Number one, the search for the worthy one. Verses 2 to 4. Notice verse 2. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Now, angels are notoriously strong. In 2 Kings 19.35, one angel struck and killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Angels are notoriously strong, but there was something about this particular angel that causes John to use that adjective in describing him. He says he was a strong angel. He was stronger than most. And he was proclaiming, or that word might better be translated, he was heralding. He was sending out a message, and he was doing so in a loud voice that denotes urgency and concern. And his question was, who is worthy? Who is worthy to come and take this book and to open the seals? Who is morally worthy? Who qualifies to lay claim to the earth? Who has furnished the price of redemption? And the search was begun throughout the entire universe and verse 3 says, And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Michael, the archangel, wasn't able. Gabriel, the one who revealed these things to Daniel, wasn't able. This strong angel of verse 2 wasn't able. He could only ask the question. No man was able. No one stirred from any corner of the universe because no one had a right. And in order to be worthy to open this book, two things had to be true. Number one, the individual had to be a near kinsman. Because you remember when Jeremiah got the opportunity to buy the field, it was because he was the cousin of that man. He got the opportunity because he was a near kinsman. Angels don't qualify as near kinsmen to redeem man and to redeem this earth. So you had to be a near kinsman. And secondly, you had to be able to pay the price. And that's what disqualifies man because no man is able to pay the price to redeem this world and to redeem mankind. And so you had to be a near kinsman and you had to pay the price. And no one was found able to open the book. And so verse 3 gives us John's reaction. Or verse 4 gives us his reaction. He says, And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. John begins to weep. And I read some writers who said John was weeping because he was so curious about what was in the book that when he didn't find out, he started crying. Well, I don't think that's why he's crying. I mean, that's why my little girl cries. 
because uh, I don't give her something and she's so curious I could see her mind going. It's like, don't open that drawer and she'll stand there a while like, I can't wait to see what's in it. Well, that's not, John is in the spirit in heaven. He's not being selfish here. He's not just throwing a little tantrum and whining about the situation. See, John understands what the book is. And the book is the redemption of man and the redemption of the world. It's, it's the title deed to the earth. And if the book can't be opened, then man is left in his hopeless, helpless situation. And so John begins to shed tears about what he sees. Because if the book isn't open, then Satan continues to reign in this earth. And I've heard people say that there are no tears in heaven. But here are some. John is in heaven, in the spirit, and he's shedding tears about an unredeemed world, which probably should say something to you and me about where God's heart is, and maybe you and I ought to be shedding a few more tears for a lost humanity and an unredeemed world around us. But there's the search for the worthy one, and it comes up empty. And secondly, we see the selection of the worthy one, and that's verses 5 to 7. Verse 5 says, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, a lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. If anyone in heaven ought to understand redemption, it ought to be a redeemed person. And so the person who steps forward is one of the elders, and he says, Stop weeping. There is one who is worthy. There is one who has overcome. There is one who is able to open the book and to break its seals. And who is it? He says he is the lion from the tribe of Judah and he is the root of David. He qualifies because he's a near kinsman. He's the lion from the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah, you'll read in Genesis 49, was the lion tribe. It was the ruling tribe. It was the tribe through whom the Messiah was promised to come. And so he is called here the lion of the lion's tribe. And then not only that, but he says he is the root of David. And of course, the Messiah was also promised to come through the household of David. And so he says he is the root. Interestingly enough, he doesn't just say he's the offspring of David. He is the root of David, which says more than that. Uh, in Revelation chapter 22, he's called the root and the offspring of David. And that's kind of like when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 22, he said to them, asked them a question, he said, whose son is Messiah? And they said, well, he's going to be the son of David. And then he quotes from the Psalms and he says, well, then why does David call him Lord? When he says, the Lord said to my Lord, uh, sit, at my, sit, sit down until I make thy enemies uh, put thy enemies under thy footstool. So he says, well, if he's David's son, why does David call him Lord? And the Pharisees kind of just went away scratching their head like they couldn't figure that out. Well, the truth is that he is the offspring of David. He is also the root of David, the source of David, because that speaks of his deity. But I think the emphasis here is on the fact that he is a near kinsman. He qualifies because he is the lion from the tribe of Judah and he is the root of David. And so John is here, he's crying, he's told to stop crying because there is one who is worthy and the one who is worthy is the lion from the tribe of Judah. And John turns around to see the lion. And what does he see? Verse 6. And I saw between the throne 
and the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain. John turns around to see the lion, and he sees a lamb. That's a striking contrast. Two creatures could scarcely be more opposite in their character than a lion and a lamb. In fact, the Greek word here for lamb is the Greek word arneon, and it means a little lamb, a little pet lamb. It's only use other than the book of Revelation when it refers to Christ is the one time it's used in John 21, 15, where Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And he says, you know I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my lambs, my little ones. And that's the word used of the Lord Jesus here. And I think the picture is to take us probably back to that Passover time, the first Passover when they were told to go and take a lamb one year old without blemish out of their flock. They were to take it on the 10th of the month and they were to keep it in their house until the 14th. They were to keep it four days in their house. So it became kind of a little pet. It was around the house and the kids played with it for four days and then after four days they were to take that lamb that had become very affectionate to the family and they were to kill it and spread the blood on the doorpost and on the side posts. And the image here as we look for the lion and see the lamb is this little lamb, this little yearling lamb described as the Lord Jesus. I want you to notice five things about him in verse 6. Number one, he's standing as if slain. He still bears the marks of Calvary, marks that John saw applied firsthand because John was standing there at the cross when the Lord Jesus was crucified. And so here he is in heaven, and he still bears the marks of Calvary. There's only one man-made thing in heaven, and that is the nail prints in Jesus' hands and feet. And those prints are going to be an eternal reminder of God's grace. We won't have the breaking of bread in heaven. We won't need a time to take bread and the cup to remind us of the sacrifice of Christ because we will have the continual reminder of the wounds that are still in his hands and his feet and his side. And so not only is he the near kinsman to qualify, he also paid the price. And that's what he's emphasizing here. So number one, he's slain. But I'd like you to notice something else, and that is he is standing as if slain. Slain lambs don't stand, but this one does. And the idea that he's standing speaks of his resurrection. He is the slain lamb, but he is standing. And that's the paradox because the lion overcame by becoming the sacrificial lamb. He was a lion, but he didn't overcome as a lion. He overcame as a lamb when he took our place on Calvary. And he is now standing in glory with those marks because of resurrection. And then thirdly, we find out about him that he has seven horns. And just as on an animal, a horn is something used to establish power, a horn in Scripture always refers to power. We're going to find out later in Revelation, we find out also in Daniel, that horns speak of kings and kingdoms. Horns have to do with power and authority. And so we find out that this lamb is not weak. He has seven horns. And the number seven, we said, speaks of completion. So he has complete power and complete authority. And then fourthly, we find out he has seven eyes, which speak of perception and wisdom. He is all-knowing, 
And the end of the verse tells us that this seven, these seven eyes refer to the Spirit of God. And then fifthly, I'd like you to notice that the Lamb is in the center of the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And that's really exciting to me. He is in the center of the throne of the universe. And when I think about, when you think about the throne of the center of this universe, you know what's there? It's not God's power. It's not God's authority. It's not God's justice that sits in the center of the throne. It is God's sacrificial love. There's a lamb standing as if slain in the center of the throne of this universe. And when, when, when we think about our God, in the very center of His being, there is the Lord Jesus as a sacrificed lamb. He's in the center of the throne. And then beyond that, any estimate that you have of the Lord Jesus that fails to give Him that place in your life is out of harmony with reality. The Lord Jesus is the one who sits in the center of the throne of the universe. I wonder where He's at in your life. And if we fail to give Him the center of the throne of our life, then we're out of step with the reality of this universe. And so we see the Lord Jesus qualifying as the near kinsman because He's from the tribe of Judah. He qualified because He paid the price. He's the Lamb standing as if slain. And so He is worthy. And we read in verse 7, And He came and He took it out of the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. The Lord Jesus comes and He takes this scroll, this title deed to the earth, out of the hand of His Father who sits on the throne because He is worthy. And then finally, we notice in this chapter the response to that, which is the song for the worthy one in verses 8 to 14. And notice verse 8, and it says, And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And as he takes this book, praise commences from the throne, and we're going to see it kind of proceeding outward and ever-widening circles. It's kind of like you throw a rock in a, in a lake and the, and the ripples keep going. And we're going to find praise beginning here around the throne and then it's going to spread out and out and out until it encompasses all of the universe. And it begins with the four living creatures and the 24 elders as they fall down before the Lamb. And if you'll notice, they have harps, which are instruments of worship, and they have bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it says a lot to me. And that is that, that when it comes time to worship the Lord, there are going to be golden bowls there and they're going to be full of incense, and that incense is going to represent the prayers of the saints. And I thought about myself, if... If I'm there with a golden bowl and my bowl's got to be full of my prayer life, I wonder how much sweet-smelling incense is going to be there that honors the Lord. It kind of speaks to us about the priority of prayer because it's used here as, as worship before the Lamb. And one writer said that uh, he thought that in this bowl were all the unanswered prayers, that those prayers that we never got the answers to, that here they are, they're all being answered now at the completion of history, um, and that may be a thought, but I think that's not probably the prime thought here. 
Because the prime thought here is not what the Lord Jesus can give to us, it's what we can give to Him. Because the worship is directed toward Him in this instance. And then notice the song that they sing. And they sing a new song, verse 9, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and purchased for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. What a great song. Verse 2 says, Who is worthy? They cry out and say to the Lord Jesus, You are worthy. And what makes Christ worthy? He purchased men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He purchased the title deed to the earth. And what was the price? Notice verse 9. You purchased it them with your blood. The price was his sacrifice. And for whom did he purchase us? Notice it in verse 9. It's purchased for God with thy blood. Did you ever think about that? Christ purchased you for the Father. You are Christ's love gift to the Father. That's an exciting thought about our importance. Christ gave his life, sacrificed himself for us so that he might offer us to the Father as a gift to him. And what was the end purpose, verse 10, that you might be a kingdom and priests to our God. And then notice the end of verse 10, and they will reign upon the earth. There's the title deed again. He gains the title deed to the earth and he redeems us so that we might reign with him on this earth that he will reclaim. And then we notice the circle of worship increasing in verse 11. It says, And I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And now the angels join in. And how many are there? Well, he says there's myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, and that sounds like a lot of angels. And what are they saying? Verse 12, Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Who is worthy? Worthy is the Lamb. And what they're really saying here is that he's worthy to receive all those things that he put aside when he humbled himself to go to the cross. He's worthy to receive all those things Power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing, which really encompass his kingdom. And they're saying, you're worthy to be the king, and you're worthy to receive all the honor and glory that comes with that. And then we see the circle widening one more time in verse 13. and says, and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Every created thing will join in the ascription of praise. And this is a fulfillment, I think, of Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, where it says, Therefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every creature will acknowledge who he is. 
And then in this response, we find at the end, verse 14. I really like this. It says, And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. Uh, can you imagine the four living creatures? They're continuously around the throne of God. They're there right now. They've been there forever. They're always there giving praise to the Father. And they're there worshiping around the throne. And now suddenly they're joined in by the 24 elders. And then all these angels. And then all of creation, all of fallen creation is now restored and begins to join in the worship. Can you imagine how they feel? They've been worshiping all along uninterrupted and now they're joined in by this huge crescendo of praise. And what do they say? All they can say is, Amen. So be it. This is great. They've been the cheerleaders that, that trying to get everybody to worship God and now the universe is in one accord and one voice worshiping Him and their response is, Amen. And then notice the end of verse 14. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Every time you see an elder in the book of Revelation, this is what he's doing. Every time you see him, he's falling down for the Lord and he's worshipping. And that's the way it ought to be today. You know, Jesus has already purchased the title deed to the earth, even though the enemy possesses it right now. And I guess... My exhortation to you and to myself today is that we ought to learn to praise and worship Him now. We will praise Him then, but right now He owns the title deed to this earth even though the enemy possesses it. Let's learn to praise and worship Him now because He is worthy today. Who is worthy? Worthy is the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word today. We thank You for this chapter that describes for us how the Lord Jesus became our near kinsman, became a man, and paid the price that we couldn't pay to redeem us and to redeem this earth so that we will one day reign with Him. And Lord, that's an amazing thought. He did it just so that He could offer us to You. And our, our significance and, and our worth is... is is not in there at all except in the fact that He cared that much about us. And Lord, we just have to stand with all the creatures we read about in this chapter and give You praise and give You worship. And Lord, we just pray that we might learn even now while the enemy possesses this earth that we might learn how to worship You so that we might be prepared for what we're going to do for eternity. And we just... Say together in our hearts today, Lord Jesus, you're worthy. And we thank you for all you've done for us. Amen.